about twisters that i really miss bill paxton ah that's that's very nice yeah i don't think i saw him in a movie since like oh no like vertical limit but (laughs) i know he was in some i just didn't see him but i guess i miss bill paxton was something in the 90s that represents a part of myself that i miss (laughs) yeah that's that's a good way of putting it because he sort of yeah he was just kind of always there he was there yeah there, there was something stable about him <laughs> some st- stable about him for sure it's, it's like you knew everything was going to be okay <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he was kind of just that like classic dude classic guy like yeah there you know, was not like, not too showy like people would recognize him but i bet a lot of people didn't know his name exactly but just had that face just like, oh yeah, that's like kind of a just a middle middle aged American dude. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 glad you said the word face because I'm I really when when watching Twister, the word that came to my mind over and over again was just this or this concept of faces, <laughs> and because Twister for me was like it was like the holy grail of '90s faces. It was just. <laughs> So full of so many faces that you huh. don't know how you recognize, but you just do. You totally. Know, yeah. You know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. there was Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. And, like, Helen Hunt was, like, you know, she was, like, the main build character uh, or actor for the movie. And Bill Paxton, yeah, people knew him. And, you know, but he was never, like, superstar. He was always yeah. sort of, like, high-level character actor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Sidekick to Hanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, sort of along the lines of like, yeah, like a Gary Sinise, maybe. Like he could carry mm. a movie, but or should I say he could carry Sinise <laughs> a movie? <laughs> <laughs> but like you wouldn't, it wouldn't be you know your first, whatever you know he yeah he wasn't like a superstar. Mm. Um, but man, like every other freaking character in Twister was yeah. like, I know that person. I don't know mm. how, but I do. You know, and yep. all of them, it was just. Like, a whole host is like that totally. guy too, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Everyone, like all of them. Yeah, I just watched it a couple weeks ago for the first time since I think the theaters actually. Wow! And I had that experience. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just amazed, kind of scene by scene. Like, holy shit, that guy's in it. Like, uh-huh. What's that guy? Look yeah. at that face. And there was several times. It's like, what is that guy from? <laughs> like the the guy who's like kind of bald with like curly hair. Like he has like a, like receding all the way back to like half of his head. Looks like the front half of his head is bald, and then he has like curly hair. He is was, he um, is he on the the main team? Yeah, he's yeah he is part of the bad news bears. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the underdog <Is> longest yard. <laughs> is he is he like the Hooper guy with like glasses? No, no, he, no. You mean the Mystic? <laughs> <laughs> that guy was the Tornado Mystic. What what kind of things mystical things did he say? So it uh, he referred to the he referred to something as the thunder of God, the, and it was like it was out of they were talking about a tornado it was like coming and he's just I think that's when they were eating like dinner at uh, the aunt's house mm. and he was just like thunder of God 
Like <laughs> it's like he was like quoting something from like the book of Job or something. Um, and very, and then very reverent. <laughs> yeah. Later, he, later after a tornado passed them, I forget which one it was. It was like not the final one, you know, but like the one before that, that destroyed everything. And then it was just like mm. gone like that. He mm-hmm. just goes, the cone has silenced. <laughs> he was very reverent. <laughs> He's like the Taoist. <laughs> yeah. And I, God, I just overlooked the fact you referred to him as that Hooper one, didn't you? Yeah. That Hooper as, guy. Yeah. I had the exact same thing. I was like, Ooh, when mm-hmm. I describe this guy, I'm going to make reference to uh, Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like post Jaws, every time there's a movie that involves some kind of like science, there's a Hooper character. There is. <laughs> like, and a guy that basically just looks like Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. I guess his personality changes because Dreyfus wasn't really a mystic. But exactly. Yeah. This guy had the appearance. I think his first appearance, he's like at a computer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, the curly hair guy that I'm thinking of who I just can't place for the for the for the uh, for anything like he might have been one of the like computer tracker guys it wasn't the map guy you know like that was uh wasn't cameron Cameron from ferris bueller yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) uh and it wasn't uh obviously yeah it wasn't hoffman obviously oh no it wasn't hoffman um but i said the the name it wasn't oppum remember oppum from saving private ryan yes the The little the guy that's yeah. a coward. Yeah, the coward guy. Yeah. That's who that was. Yeah, that's uh-huh. one of the faces. I was like, what is that guy from? What is he from? Yeah. You're right. Wow. Uh-huh. SPR. SPR, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh I, I can't picture this in this person you're talking about. Uh yeah. You know, um uh let me let me just pull it up real quick. Is, is, he, that, is he younger? Cool? Yeah, younger. Um He's got like kind of the long hair that hangs down. It's like no, mid-ear. no, he um okay. He he's like very curly. Oh, it's uh, yeah, it's this guy. His name is Joey Slotnick. <laughs> Joey Slotnick. Screen sharing coming your way. Oh, there he is. <laughs> you recognize him? He he like yeah. I, I man, he is just. I swear, like I've seen that guy in so many '90s things. He looks like Paul Giamatti, but with like a thinner, longer face. <laughs> wow, he looks exactly like that. <laughs> it's like I now that you say that, I'm looking at him and I can like hear Paul Giamatti's voice. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we talked about Jake Busey. We described him as looking exactly like Gary Busey, but as if his face was smashed in on both sides and elongated vertically. Wow, I feel like this guy has the same. With relation to Paul Giamatti. You're right. It's like Paul Giamatti <laughs> is Bert. This guy is Ernie. Or, or like whatever the... Exactly. You know, it's like one's a circle head, one's an oval head. <laughs> I have to think the creators of Bert and Ernie just like found that there was some archetype of <laughs> human appearance. Like the doppelganger effect. It's like one version of this person will have like a circular face and one will have like a thin... Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, that's such an, it's a great age old trope. Like, I mean, isn't that the idea of like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza? Like Don Quixote is like tall and Sancho Panza is small and fat. And that's right. Yeah, man. Mm -hmm. But just look at this cast. I mean, obviously Paxton, Helen Hunt, but then, you know, the fiance, I recognize Mm -hmm. her face. Carrie Elwes is in there. Oh, Carrie Elwes took me a minute to get him, but yeah, I picked that one up. Sean Whalen. (laughs) Yeah. I, he's, you know who he is? He, um, 
He is. He's from wait, the wait, Matrix. Wait. Oh, I'm shit. I'm yes, sorry. That, I, I, he's Mouse from the Matrix. Mouse. Yeah, he's Mouse. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. Um, Carrie Elwes. He always looks like. He always looks like he's joking when he's smiling. It's just like, oh, look at this fake smile. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which makes him good for this character because oh, totally. he's got that just perpetual shit-eating grin, and you just don't <laughs> <Yeah>. like him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing. Like, um, let me know if you need me to go back to that or anything. No, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> but, but so, made, so, what's that? It's just a, a last point on Elwes. It just it made him not so good in The Dark Knight Rises, which I forgot he was in until I watched it again. What? I don't remember him there at all. Yeah, he's. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna verify to make sure I'm. It's not just like an Elwes doppelganger. I mean, we have Matthew Modine. Wait, isn't Crispin <laughs> is Crispin Glover in The Dark Knight Rises? Um, maybe I'm thinking of Matthew Modine. Matthew know. Modine looks um a lot like Crispin Glover. Okay, I don't know. I don't know Matthew Modine. <laughs> oh, you'll you'll reckon ARL. Uh, he's like the cop who, who like leads the like fist fight against Bane's cronies. You know, I love those cops are like, we're going to dress in our uniforms and we're just going to brawl at you. Like, he's like the lead cop. <laughs> oh, wait, who's who's that guy? What's his M- name? Matthew Modine. Holy shit. I think that's the guy that I thought was Carrie Elwes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yep. Holy crap. They've, I'm looking like I've got a picture of Carrie, Carrie Elwes and then I'm switching to Matthew Modine and I... They look the exact same to me. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. That's kind of... Wow. Damn. Yeah, that's right. The Joker from Full Metal Jacket. Exactly. Yeah. Joker. Joker. <laughs> it's just Christopher <laughs> Nolan did that just for his own entertainment. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Damn. Well, that just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, both of those guys also look like Crispin Glover. Do you know who that is? Yes. Um, McFly's dad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Crispin Glover unnerves me every time I see him. Yeah. He's always doing something like unnerving. Like that like right. he became known in the eighties, like he for like a I guess an appearance he did on like David Letterman. And David yeah. Letterman's like, I'm never having him back. Yeah, he was just like completely off the walls and yeah. kind of creepy and jumping and kicking. He was like kicking the air, I think, a lot. Yeah. He seemed to be on a drug, but it was possible that <laughs> That's just him. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard I've heard it justified as it was an intentional publicity stunt that just didn't have the intended effect. It was supposed to be like, wow, Crispin Glover. And everyone would be like, Crispin Glover. God, Crispin Glover. You know, like <laughs> just name recognition, but it just didn't work. Yeah. Didn't work the way that Andy Kaufman's did or uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin. <laughs> <laughs> Andy Kaufman. It's like. Came on to David Letterman with a neck brace on. <laughs> As if he had just had his neck broken by Jerry the King Lawler. Jerry the King Lawler. <laughs> God, so upset. That was a great, that was such a great stunt. Oh, yeah. That is amazing. Legendary. Legendary. No one knew what was going on. It was just Jerry Lawler yeah. and Annie Kaufman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so amazing. My grandpa's name is Jerry Lawler. Is it really? Yeah, there's that's, that's like the the family name. There is a Jerry Lawler the fourth at this point. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, it just keeps passing that name down. Wow, that's amazing. 
Yeah. <laughs> One of them just was so like, is your cousin Jerry Lawler the fourth? Yep, uncle, cousin, cousin's the third, and then his son is ah. the fourth. Oh, so he's like a young, young Jerry Lawler, the fourth? A young, a young Jerry Lawler, yeah. Nice, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Crispin Glover, um, something, man, I mean, Twister, so first of all, I hadn't seen <laughs> Twister. <laughs> like... <laughs> Who knows how much you like the beginning stuff, like we'll include, but like at this point, you and I have been talking almost an hour and we've <laughs> haven't, I think we haven't even said the word twister. <laughs> no, it's, it's metaphorical, you know, a, yeah. a podcast about twister has to be a whirlwind. Exactly. And even as the, <laughs> uh, even as the psychiatrist or the psychologist in this movie says, she said, when you said you chased tornadoes deep down, I always thought it was a metaphor. <laughs> how could you have thought it was a metaphor like, i don't know I'm he's sure. actually a meteorologist right like yeah. like it's plausible that he actually did that or like do you just not you're about to get married to him like how little do you two know each other <laughs> yeah she's going with him to like meet his storm chaser friends <laughs> uh they are such the bad news bears i love it it's like <laughs> It, 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 this movie had such a 90s vibe and like you said you know you texted me the other day you were like 90s movies i forget how you said it but it's like they do a better job of diagnosing the zeitgeist than like any sort of like official criticism could possibly do or something <laughs> yeah you said you like you learn more about the 90s through like like big budget disaster movies than mm -hmm. any kind of philosophy yeah Exactly. <laughs> I think I learned more about the 90s watching Twister than reading Infinite Jest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah, because what stuck out to me, like, primarily in this movie, like, the first thing that hit home to me was the fact that it's like, oh, it's it's classic underdog story. But it's interesting because a lot of people talk about, like, the 80s, movies in the 80s as, as sort of having, like, this Reagan vibe where it's like, oh, you know, um, a little more capitalistic, this idea of, like, in the 70s, I guess the United States was fairly like austere and like spending and like kind of like, um, you know, maybe a bit like miserly or something like I don't know. I don't know what was going on. But like and then like Reagan came around in the 80s and it was like, it's OK to be rich, be opulent, blah, blah, blah. And mm, so like do see, cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and arrest people for crack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but then the 90s came around and was sort of rebelling, you know, like by the time the nineties was around, like the idea of the corporation was like becoming like a villain. And yeah. so I just love like when like Carrie Elwes's character shows up, Bill Paxton's character delivers such an obvious piece of exposition. <laughs> he just tells the audience who that guy is. <laughs> he goes, something's like, that's Jonas. Like Jonas Miller. <laughs> Jonas Miller. <laughs> He's like driving and just looking at him like through his driver's window with just an absolute sneer on his yeah. face. I watched yeah. that scene right before we started recording. Oh, it's so passion goes, got himself some corporate sponsors. Exactly. Corporate sponsors. And he says something like, he has no instinct. He has no tornado instinct. And then later That's we right. I'm like I'm like that that doesn't make sense, but then it did make sense when Bill Paxton's just like standing on the edge of that town and essentially enters a trance-like state and he like reads the wind. <laughs> he like knows the tornado. 
Yeah, you could you could tell where it's going, even when like all the equipment of his of Jonas's corporate sponsors say that it's going to go one way. Exactly, and it leads to Jonas's demise. It's a classic, uh, it's like a John Henry story: man versus the machine. <laughs> no machine can learn human instinct. <laughs> and before we went on this tangent, you were about to say something about Crispin Glover. Was I really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Crispin Glover. Maybe it was just a, a rounded out, but it seemed you were you had I, something to say about Glover. You know, I don't think I did. I think I was just just I was saying his name with a sense of exasperation because that's what okay. he does to me. Yeah, it's cool. Like, oh, Crispin Glover. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, we can kind of close the Crispin Glover <laughs> world. Yeah. yeah. The uh, R. Yeah. There we go. It's uh. <laughs> yeah, he himself is a is a twister. Yes, absolutely. Crispin um, the Twister Glover. <laughs> I think my biggest complaint about the movie Twister is that not enough people die. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So it starts with the death that, you know, you mentioned several times in this podcast that the the scene that disturbed you most as a child was Donovan dying at the end of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah. When he's aging rapidly and yeah. stumbling. What is happening to me? Yeah. I would run up. I would, preparing for that scene, we would usually watch movies in our basement. I would run to like the top of the stairs so I could like peek down and watch. And once that Donovan scene came up, I would just run back. I would run all the way upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this, the Helen Hunt's dad dying is that for you, right? Yeah, for whatever reason, that opening scene of Twister and watching that that man screaming <laughs> and <laughs> get sucked up into the sky and out of sight is the scene that probably disturbed me most as a kid. Wow. I remember, I mean, I saw Jurassic Park in the theaters when I was like five and I still thought dinosaurs were awesome. <laughs> but I, I guess it was because then... Every time there was a storm, oh. I had that image in mind. I just thought that was going to happen to me wow. or like my family. My family. <laughs> my family. <laughs> what about my family? <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. So I was like, just terrified every time there was a storm. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's it, what's it like watching it now? Like, what, what do you think of that scene? Like, do you have a memory of that or... I, your yeah, it was it was pretty much the only scene of that whole movie that I remember, other than uh, Paxton and Helen Hunt like wrapping themselves uh -huh. up with like a saddle or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I guess it wasn't a saddle. I thought it was a saddle, but it was just like some leather some leather strap. Yeah, yeah. Those are the only parts that I remembered. I mean, I was kind of amazed watching it again that I didn't remember anything. Yeah, and that it's not that scary. I think that I think they should have killed one of the team. That would have raised the stakes significantly. Everyone's just fine constantly. Yeah. If they yeah. killed like uh, Cameron from Ferris yeah. Bueller, yeah, like, oh shit, Cameron died. <laughs> like these tornadoes, <laughs> this, is, this is serious business. <laughs> not just like oh, shit, Cameron died. <laughs> yeah, not just like I mean, they skirt the, the edge guy. of those tornadoes constantly. Yeah, but, I mean, they're in one. Like yeah, <laughs> the car gets spun around in circles. Yeah. <laughs> And like every time, like when they're trying to get Dorothy up into the tornadoes, they're just like, they drive up to it. And I'm like, why not have like one of your other teammates drive their car too? So just in case something screws up, you can jump in and turn around <laughs> right. or yeah, like, have that they're trying to, yeah, there were a couple of things I, you know, like I didn't ever actually see this, 
this might have been the first time I've sat down and watched the entire movie beginning to end. Mm. Um, I've caught it in pieces, you know, over the years and whatnot. But like, I never understood, like, you know, why didn't you put Dorothy on a very easy to unhook trailer, you know, and or something like that. And Hmm. there were a couple technical things about Dorothy that didn't really make sense to me. But um, uh, yeah, the stakes weren't raised enough and so the the weird thing is i i actually thought that the ant died i thought i had a memory that the ant had died and i feel mm. like that would have helped really cement the seriousness of all this because right the whole idea of that tornado was like no one had any warning and they mentioned that over and over they're like if we can get data <laughs> we can extend the warning or whatever um mm. mm-hmm. and in my mind i thought about that and i was like you know i bet i bet there was a writer somewhere along the way who so was like no like or maybe the director who was like, for the sake of the story, we have to have the ant die. Like that really would like cement the seriousness of this. And then mm-hmm. someone from the studio came along and was like, this is a family movie. We can't have the ant die. Yeah. It's like, Oh, when she was alive, like great, it's happy, but it, it, it kept the stakes so much lower. You're right. Right. Totally. It's like, it raised what? the stakes yeah. instantly with the, in, with the first scene with Helen Hunt's yeah. dad dying, which is definitely one of my favorite nineties tropes is the opening scene that sets the stage you're so right <laughs> that's like such a it's, it's totally spielberg like it is. you have to have created that with like jaws jaws Jurassic park yeah independence day park. resurgence <laughs> <laughs> independence day resurgence it starts with bill pullman's nightmare <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I remember watching that in the theater with you. The yeah. second that he wakes up screaming, yeah. we laughed so hard. Yeah. I, like, <laughs> I as we were laughing, I was thinking to myself, like, I can't take it. i this is gonna be this is gonna be the laugh that does me in. <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> like, did, you, did, yeah, it's just you can't even recover from a laugh like that. It just knocks you out. Right. It's hard to keep laughing. (laughs) One minute after the movie started. (laughs) Oh, man. That was great. (laughs) Didn't didn't like Placid start with like a set the stage? Like (laughs) something bad happens. Someone gets eaten or dies. It did. I think it was. I think. But I think it was with a Gleason or something. Gleason, yeah, Gleason's was, partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm, totally. So it'll be, like, yeah. connected to the plot in some way, but, like, not necessarily the direct plot. Like, yeah. I, I guess it... Sometimes it's an inciting incident, as mm-hmm. I guess it was in that, but in Jurassic Park, it's not an inciting incident. It's <laughs> no. just like, these raptors are bad. They eat people. <laughs> and, like, even this intense-looking British man can't stop them. <laughs> You don't see it. You just see its eye. <laughs> You're right. And like the amazing thing about that, that trope is that like they're by and large, they're very successful. It's like they, they really get you in, oh, yeah. you know, like totally. they, they really do a good job, but like looking at them with some hindsight <laughs> with like a, a little bit of like tweaked personality, they, they're pretty funny, you know? Cause like, you know, I'm sorry to say this. Like I, I really didn't grow up watching Twister. So like, um, as as psychologically disturbing that is that opening scene was for you like watching it this morning i was like i actually started laughing at it <laughs> totally 
I definitely laughed at it this time too, especially because there was like there's like an error in judgment when it seems like in making that because the the door is bolted, and like mm-hmm. the bolt is like you can see the bolts coming loose, but it's still bolted. And he's like, I can't hang on. It's like, well, you don't have to because it's bolted. And then it's like it rips the door off and just sends him flying away. Meanwhile, <laughs> Helen Hunt is five feet away, sitting peacefully. Yeah, right. <laughs> he just let the door. <laughs> Holding the door shut isn't necessary to save their lives. Like they're not even at the back of this bunker. They're just like halfway back and they don't they don't even get close to getting sucked up. Oh. They're just standing there like baffled. (laughs) Like the whole idea of the bunker is just like go in the back and the wind won't suck you out. You'll be protected from shrapnel and wind and rain and yeah, the, the uh, <laughs> definitely the visual of him getting sucked up was really funny this time. Plus, <laughs> like, his body's in kind of like a crouched position, and as he gets sucked up, it just stays in that crouched position. <laughs> like he doesn't get extended. It's just like this crouched dude ascending straight up, and then he just gets like shot to the side off the screen, and he's just screaming. <laughs> you can just picture these like like ropes on him like pulling him up <laughs> wow yeah, with like a green screen oh my god that is so fucking funny <laughs> oh yeah i laughed at that yeah it's just like that's that's classic screenwriting right like yeah traumatic event equals character motivation exactly <laughs> like, character obsession yeah traumatic childhood events are just like yeah because it's, it's something traumatic yeah still like you know throughout the movie into her adulthood you know helen hunt's character she very much has this you know like she needs to redeem and almost conquer tornadoes and it's like because yeah. they've been basically personified you know mm-hmm. they're like this is the bad guy the bad guy yeah so i was thinking about this because I was kind of struggling with the idea of like, so I I learned about this before. It's, um, you know, in a movie, there's a protagonist and there's also a point of view character. And sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're not the same. So like, you know, the protagonist short story is the main character, but the point of view character is the person who's sort of seeing the world for the audience. So like, like being, chief Bromden seeing uh, Jack Nicholson. Exactly. Cuckoo's nest. Yeah. He's not the protagonist, but he's the POV character. Um, mm-hmm. But so it kind of gets tricky when it's a movie like this, but whatever. I don't know if that's really necessary to, to go into, but I, I was thinking about Helen Hunt's motivations and Bill Paxton's motivations, you know, cause it was kind of clever. Like, Oh, the divorce papers. Oh, here we are. Big tornado. Come on. One more ride with the old gang. kind ride. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, as I was watching it, I was like, someone, there was a scene when it was like, when they were eating lunch at the aunt's house and everyone's like, Oh man, Bill Paxton, he's a wild man. He's just, he's a wild man. <laughs> and I started yeah, right. to think about this, like from like, a again, like, to the mythology thing, like, like there are some mythologies about like the, the, the man who must be like reconciled with his wild side or else he'll never fit in. Like he's constrained by the constraints of society, which I thought was very funny that in this case was represented by his psychologist, uh, 
fiance who's a very uh-huh. very much shown to be like a, a buffoon you know like they show her on the phone and mm-hmm. she's like it's not your penis you know it's like right. they, they, like the movie had like a very low opinion it seems of like mental health professionals or something <laughs> yeah, for sure yeah. it just it made her seem like a just a whatever but you know oh she oh yeah it has to be on her phone it was very like oh well you just well you're so self-important you always have to have your phone on you you know it's yep. like in an era right, when that yeah. wasn't common and Bill Paxton rediscovering his like wild side. It seems like it's like, what are you going to be, buddy? The storm chaser or the weatherman? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. He... The tame like society guy. Yeah. Or the wild man. The true, the true spirit. Yeah. Paxton. <laughs> I just thought it was like so funny. I just, something about that just intrigued me so much. Cause it's like, like Helen Hunt's motivation, you know, as you know, revengeance, you know, conquering yeah. the thing destroying uh-huh. you know saving lives redeeming you know redemption and then uh-huh. bill paxton's just like he, he like his true self is lost <laughs> yeah and they never really say why he left do they Mm-mm. he's just like he's back like, he's back yeah. maybe it's because his relationship didn't go well with hunt so he just left yeah but that doesn't seem to like make sense as to why he would become a weatherman and get all tame yeah. Oh, they said they said it was such disdain. Weatherman. Yeah, weatherman. You're just a weatherman. <laughs> You're just a weatherman. <laughs> Even Carrie <laughs> Elwes. Yeah. Yeah, we're out here with our, you know, fucking makeshift old school bus, which reminds me of like Ken Kesey for some reason. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman was definitely like the acid head Burning Man character. <laughs> Food. <laughs> This this Philip Seymour Hoffman's great because it's like there, there's a Philip Seymour Hoffman version where he was he and Jack Black were the same person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> along That's, came Polly is another example. Along came Polly. Yeah. Um, oh shit! There's I think even almost famous when he plays oh, like Lester Bangs. Totally. Yeah. Like just that like crazy music loving guy who's just like <laughs> and um uh uh, uh Dirk Diggler movie. Ah, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. He's sort of Boogie still Nights. like a kind of a avant-garde, whatever. You know, that character is not, right. you know, it's not Philip Seymour Hoffman from like, you know, Doubt or The Master. Yeah. You know, like. Capote. Capote, yeah. It's still 90s <laughs> Hoffman. 90s Hoffman, yeah. 90s and early 2000s Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing Jack Black talking, I think, to Conan O'Brien, and he was describing how Philip Seymour Hoffman and him are always going for the same roles. Yeah. And he, he described Philip Seymour Hoffman as his nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing. Like, think of, think of like, uh, Jack Black from, like, uh, Shallow Hal. That's, like, very mm-hmm. similar to, like, one of these, like, 90s, early 2000s Hoffmans. Yeah, and high fidelity. Yeah, exactly. Jeez, that is so, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, like, yeah, Jack Black remained, like, kind of very, like, silly and whatnot. But, like, you know, you could very much see how, like, after the movie, um, uh, what was the one where Jack Black, it was, uh, uh, Kong? No, no, it's not Skull <laughs> Island. <laughs> that was the Peter Jackson, King Kong. Oh, God, that one. No, it was Bernie. The movie Bernie. Bernie. Did you ever see that? Yeah. I did, yes. Oh, my God. That movie's amazing. It's awesome. <laughs> and he just, like, you could see how, like, and Roger, Roger Ebert said, he's like, he should have been, easily should have been nominated for Best Actor. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was his, that was his uh, crossing the Hoffman threshold moment. 
Yes. I think he had tried to make the cross before, but that was when yeah. he did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jack Black. Have you seen Jumanji? No, I have not. It's it's very worth it. Really? Both of them, in fact. Yeah, I was hmm. very pleasantly surprised with how much I laughed at it. Wow. A lot of it at Jack Black. You you said you did tell me something about it, like some some character just like popped out of nowhere, right? Or is that right? I think so. Yeah, there there were just several very hilarious moments that I know you would laugh at a lot. Maybe it was like when they switched, they sort of like switched bodies or something, perhaps. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> So I I love I love the fact that Carrie Elwes's crew just drives these like just sleek black minivans. Like that was like, like those were Dodge Grand Caravans. My family okay. we had one. And oh nice. <laughs> Twister I think was ninety six, and I think like ninety five was like the first time the Dodge Caravan looked like that. You know, it looked like basically like half an egg. You know, like a quarter of an egg. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> it's just so. Man, with like 25 years of hindsight, so nerdy looking. There's yeah. nothing cooler imposing about that. No, nothing. <laughs> it's got a lot of space, though. Oh, man, I, I love... I rewound it, and I think I sent you a little Instagram post of when Carrie Elwes, uh, when he dies, mm-hmm. the, his driver, who again is like, who is that dude? I've seen him in a million things. Totally. One of those faces. And I instantly recognized him as the... The boss from Fight Club. Oh. That's <laughs> the what guy it that's is. watching as Edward Norton just beats the shit out of himself. That's who he is. <laughs> you, what does he call him? Like, you crazy fuck. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. But yeah, I love I, when, you know, Carrie Elwes, your hubris, you're flying too close to the sun, man, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't have the instinct. You think have- you think money and corporate sponsorship is everything? It's so dehumanizing. You need the human factor instinct. Um, yep. Can't trust robots. But uh, I just love this giant metal beam. It's like coming right for them. Carrie always screams, and then his driver has his eyes like wide open. He's like, oh! and like they like very fast zoom in on that guy's face, and it just made me laugh very hard. It was a funny. It was a really good death scene. Yeah. It was, it, yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's the only one other than Hunt's dad. So that yeah could have been, been another, but it was it was definitely good. Yeah, and then Bill Paxton just upset, even though you know he was trying to save him. Yeah, they might have been rivals. Right. But he's trying guy. to save him. Yeah, he just goes he like bashed his arm. <laughs> like, Stupid. <laughs> another odd thing about this movie is the whole drive-in sequence. There's a long period of time where clips from The Shining are being shown yeah. at this drive-in movie. Like, why is The Shining in this movie? <laughs> I was actually very confused. I I don't I didn't know if we were like witnessing like a flashback or something because all of a sudden it's just this like I see this kid like on a tricycle and I'm like God this is like The Shining and then mm-hmm. he like turns yeah. the corner I was like what the fuck Yeah, it just is The Shining. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they were. It- trying to just make it suspenseful or something but trying to make some symbolic parallel between the whirlwind jack nicholson and these tornadoes yeah 
the unpredictable. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Never know when it's going to come in and just yeah, break shit. Because it's 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 literally plowing through the screen right as he's like plowing through the door. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Finally breaks through. Yeah. I'm sure someone thought that was clever. That's it. That's what it felt like. It felt like someone thought that was clever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it could have very well just been any movie. You know. Right. It's like, oh, The Shining, that's suspenseful. People people have a response to that. We're going to exploit Kubrick's masterpiece yeah. vision. But like that movie's suspenseful <laughs> because the whole movie is like there are a few yeah, individually suspenseful scenes, but like primarily it's the yeah. entire movie. Yeah, it's yeah. like every second of that movie. Yeah. It's Scatman <laughs> Crothers like, in his apartment just like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scatman Crothers getting killed by an axe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, another movie that traumatized me deeply as a child yeah. which i know we've gotten into we have yeah, yeah. that traumatized <laughs> me basically as an adult yeah yeah <laughs> you know it was yeah. it was with lake placid that we spent some time i know talking about uh one of my big movie traumas which was um silence of the lambs uh that's right yes uh-huh wow. with uh buffalo bill yeah buffalo bill <laughs> just like just like watching the scene yeah, yeah, I can never see him. I'm like, well, how how are we watching Monk right now? Like anyone else? Like you see who that is? <laughs> it's just yeah, just like staring at this like mass murder, just like shove his penis between his legs, and then my mom's like, Matt, time for basketball. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> like I'll never I'll never get this out of my head. I'm 12 and I know that I'm scarred for life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what an amazing concept that. We have these screens that just have these images and kids just like sit there and perceive it and they yeah. enter the brain. They are processed in the brain and just stick in a way that like is fucks them up. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Twisted this one into uh, oblivion. Yeah, we entered the suck zone. <laughs> we entered the suck zone. I love, I will say I love how like the fiance is just like put in Philip Seymour Hoffman's care for the first five minutes. And he's just like so energetic. And yeah, it seems like he's on speed and he's just like, woo. He's always like jumping off stuff when he doesn't have to. And he's wearing his hoodie yeah. just by the hood. And you hear him like telling her about the suck zone. And then they're like <laughs> talking about something. And he literally comes from off screen right into her ear. He just goes, that's the suck zone. <laughs> just like so blatantly flirting with her. Yeah. Like, beyond flirting with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, two two guys God. in this movie that i miss a lot paxton and hoffman oh me too man did you ever see big love the show mm -hmm. no oh i've seen a couple episodes and that show's amazing do you know what it's about have, no oh you like know no, nothing about it i know nothing about it oh wow i th i think it was showtime but it might have been hbo and it was um it was a series. It maybe went like four or five seasons with Bill Paxton as the lead. And he – it's about a Mormon family and he has several wives. And so it's this like kind of drama series about like this family, like living as a family. But it's like, you know, he has his like first wife. I don't really know what they're called. And then like the – he has like two other like, you know, sister wives or whatever. And it's like really a, i mean it's a really highly acclaimed show and i've seen like really? one or two episodes and they're really awesome it's toward the end of his his life uh no actually like i i want to say the series 
probably ended in like 2007 or 2008. Oh, okay. So nice. Yeah. Let me just, let me look that up real quick. Big love, big love. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ended in starting. Yeah. HBO started in 2006 and ended in 2011. Hmm. Yeah. I could see Paxton playing a good, uh, Mormon, several wives. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a really, there's a, an episode with a really great scene where it's like, Bill Paxton does it a really, f- oh my God, it's such a great episode. There's a, yeah. I don't really know how to describe it in any way. It's just like, you need to like experience, but it's like, it's so amazing. He's like going through this like crisis, like family crisis. And, you know, his kids want to do this. And like, he's having like troubles with his wives or something like this. And it's like, he's just like falls on his knees in prayer. And it's this like, really like deeply emotional scene. And it's also just like, kind of like, like <laughs> I don't like a Mormon might personally find this scene to just be like, totally kind of like a beautiful representation of like what it means to live as a devout Mormon. But like for someone who's not Mormon to me, there's like a bit of comedy to it too, because like in the background is a play about like Joseph Smith and this like Moroni, the angel is just like rising in the air. <laughs> it's like, and I'm, so for me, it's a little funny, but, uh, <laughs> but Bill Paxton, he just does a really great job of like, of being a man who's really trying to suppress his intensity, <laughs> which is, I know that's a character that you enjoy. You enjoy observing a character like that. Who just who represses his instincts. Well, yeah, I feel like you and I, we, we were intrigued by like a character who's like a man who's really trying not to become angry, even though he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> what are we, I think I would, I would imagine that I am drawn to such a character because I saw so many of those real people throughout my life in suburban America. It was everyone's dad. It was everyone's dad. <laughs> oh god! Just like some sense of rage bubbling under like the affable, yeah, but distant surface. Man, I feel like I feel like you're describing so many times I like spent the night at like friends' houses, and you could just feel that the dad was like, you could just feel his anger. <laughs> you could. It was like something terrifying about like, even if he wasn't in the same room, just yeah. knowing that that dad was like in the vicinity. It's like, oh shit! <laughs> wow. Yeah, the amount of suburban dads who's like. Whose rage is just beneath the skin is astounding. Like how it seems a new trend is that all of our episodes come around to talking about like suburban dads and like different ways that their rage is suppressed and that their emotions have a channel. Like at the end of Bagger Vance, we just talked about how sports allow suburban dads to express emotion. Yeah. Like the only acceptable way. Yeah. It's like a release valve for society. It's right. It's like the one thing that they get that can like save us all from total psychotic breaks. Yeah. You know, I used to very much be of the mindset that it's like, Sports are like mindless, mindless things that that society shouldn't have a lot of because they, you know, rather than putting our effort into talking about important topics, we're like, you know, fucking no American can 
talk about talk with a level head about politics. But then, you know, Monday morning, everyone can politely disagree about a coach's call. And like, why did the fullback run on fourth and two? You know, blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, right. I, I agree. Yeah. But here, take, take a look at this stat. You know, when it comes to politics, yeah. we don't know anything, you know. So mm-hmm. but now the more I think about it, I'm like, well, maybe sports are necessary to, to be a sort of like vent in society. Because when we get all this pent up rage, at least we can all be like, ah, Super Bowl. And it's like, right. it's like. If you ever cook with a pressure cooker, you have to like you have to release the pressure before you open it, or it will explode. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but I did see something recently that was kind of critiquing uh, that theory that mm-hmm. expressing an emotion releases it. Oh, and really? That actually, expressing it can like further embed it and like increase it over time. So interesting. It is, po- it is possible that the whole sports mentality is actually playing into wow. the creation of severe rage it's wow. suburban dads that's fascinating yeah that's really so it's like almost like the yeah i don't know i can't think of an example but like i feel like a wound could be somehow an example like or like mm, i don't know if you like yeah. you pick a scab mm-hmm. like yeah it will heal but it will like be scarred almost like just because yeah just because you like talk about something or you express a yeah. certain emotion doesn't mean you're necessarily doing it in a healthy way or something Totally. Yeah. Like Interesting. someone's just like beating a wall or something like <laughs> that doesn't that's solve not the... necessarily d- dissipating this like amount of anger that's just there and needs to find some expression like it could potentially be playing into the cycle of accelerating uh... the anger and the aggression. And like, yeah, you get tired and it's gone for a little bit but it's just going to circle back in the same or maybe a heightened way and now you know how to like express it so yeah but but then like it's this tricky line because it seems like the only other option then is repression and that's not going to work because you know you bottle it up and then the bottle goes crack yeah and it's gonna it's gonna be bad it's gonna be it's gonna be real bad yeah (laughs) but the uh the spiritual path the higher the higher path is to transmute it. Oh, that's a good word. Yeah. Spiritual transmutation. What does that mean? If you think of uh, all these intense emotions as like energy, uh huh, a way of moving into it to where you can embrace it and accept it, mm. but allow it to change forms. Oh, interesting. It's, it's like a... Uh, it's like a spiritual alchemy. Interesting. Carl, Carl Jung talked about this kind of stuff. That's why, uh, he was, okay. why he was really interested in alchemy. It was like the transmutation of substances of like a dense like metal into gold. Which yeah. he, I think, had in this very like symbolic way of like transmuting this like dense instinctual emotion into something like just... I don't know. People get really like, you know, abstract and woo-woo with this kind of stuff. But like they talk about it as like spreading the energy throughout your body, allowing it to move instead of like focusing on it. And, you know, like if someone's really angry, typically they start like breathing really shallow, you know, Mm -hmm. and like it'll just kind of have this feeling of stuckness. But if you can like take really deep breaths with it and like not push it down, but like allow yourself to feel it without... Maybe there's some way to like express it that can be part of this process, but not just like like going full bane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that that the image that comes to mind is sort of the classic Buddhist image of like your thoughts being like clouds. You know, like they they'll change shape and like let them come in, and sometimes yeah, totally. let them continue. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's it's like really allowing versus like fixation. Yeah. Or another yeah. kind of example, like you mentioned with the metals, is a great metaphor I always hear is the the idea of a, uh, you know, like a iron must be must be, you know, tested in fire for it to become steel. You know, it's like it by. I guess that's kind of a metaphor for more for like the the positive quality of undergoing suffering. It's like mm. then then you can emerge from it or something. I guess yeah. that's a little different, but yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's all kind of related because mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be some suffering involved in like going into these yeah. hard these emotions <laughs> that are hard to feel and kind of suck. I mean, I I just I think about this all the time. I'm like, man, I wish there was some some style of education that focused on training people for their emotions and understanding them. Cause like you and I both know having taught like high school boys, like sometimes like, and not only just the classic, like, Oh, classic high school boy, but like their, their emotional, like literacy and ability to like name and talk about emotions, um, is like astoundingly awful. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like, and like, sometimes like you hear them like talk about like a, a, an, a something in their life that caused them like suffering. And you're like, like well did you think that it was that your life was supposed to go the other way like i i understand that like you know you your friend got sick or your car got in an accident or something but like did you ever consider that like things not going exactly as you think they are is the norm <laughs> you know like, like what's that, the way they talk about it is it just this kind of it's like it wasn't supposed to happen like that like i've definitely heard students talk about that or like uh, you know i think like a you know a friend of theirs like didn't get into a school or they didn't get into a school or something and it's just like it wasn't <laughs> supposed to go like this it's like yeah i i get that like you didn't want it but it's not that it wasn't supposed to go like this uh you know like yeah there's a difference between like oh i wanted this and um, this, I thought this was impossible. Yeah. Like, oh. That's like Freud talked about like the pleasure principle and how that uh. gets upset by the reality principle. When like <laughs> a child, an infant learns that like it's instinctual yearning isn't mm-hmm. always satisfied. And that pretty mm. much seems like that's happening, but in a very delayed way. Yeah. Like, yeah. This kid has just been met with every need and every like desire for pleasure instantly mm-hmm. and when something goes off course like it wasn't supposed to happen it wasn't supposed that's, to happen that's definitely an unfair reduction because these sound like bigger scale like events but it's, but, it's same yeah. same principle though it seems you know it's like right yeah because again it's like the way i've heard them sometimes talk about talk about the problems yeah yeah like there's this uh, uh, inability to to see that life brings pain and like yeah. to accept and be with that as part of the experience and like yeah yeah there's instant interpretation that it's like wrong and bad that is wrong yeah and it shouldn't have happened mm-hmm. yeah wow yeah. there's so many just like society like those kids are just getting those messages from so many places it's so true right like when the i mean <clears throat> They're yeah, not being I'm, taught to like feel sadness and that being uh-huh. okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I, I doubt there's an adult in the world that says like, um, sadness is bad and something to be avoided. Like I, there's, there's no way no one's, there's no way anyone is saying that message directly. But if you look at right. the, like the vast experience of media all around the world, that's like, or that they experience, like that's the, that's one of the underlying or one of the main perhaps underlying messages. Like, 
you should never, ever have to experience anything close to suffering. Like, <laughs> just because, like, look at this. Look at this. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa, you... Uh, we're all in for a big shock then. Right. And and then it's, it gets to this level where it's like, if you are experiencing something other than, like, happiness and pleasure or anger at the game, you have to suppress it because it's yeah. impolite to talk about it. And, like... In the context of like high school, what I witnessed, mm -hmm. at least at an all boys, mostly white school, was like, I mean, you'd get ridiculed, you know, like the, yeah. the ethos was not to like have an emotional experience. It was just so intensely downloaded into these kids' ways of being that, like, mm -hmm. you know, have to just have it together and like not be sad or something. Like, yeah, it's a weakness. Or some yeah. shit like that gets so fucked up crazy like that's why when like they would get some kind of whether like totally authentic or even artificial experience of something along the lines of like an emotional experience they, they would have this like enjoyment as well as sense of confusion like i don't know <laughs> i don't know it could be like this yeah, right <laughs> yeah like yeah it's confusion that's a really good way of putting yeah. it <laughs> I just like so much of this seems at least at the school I was at seemed to come through sports like it seemed like the it was still like the jocks kind of created mm -hmm. the were the the proprietors of that yeah pressure, that pressure and it's like well where are they getting it from like coaches with repressed emotions who were screaming at them like <sighs> God you're right all because of whom watch sports like no one it's not like any of those coaches ever were like hey. I'm, I'm a very angry guy with repression, you know, like <laughs> it was just like, this is I the am, way it is. Yeah. Like I'm your coach. So in some way I'm your role model. And like, because people are so subconsciously perceptive, I'm sure people are like picking up on that. Like I remember having coaches. I can remember so many right now, including I told I talked about it in one of the previous podcasts, the guy who's like, now get out there and kick their butts, <laughs> you know, like something about that. He was I can't think about it more. It's like he was fine yelling fuck and damn it and God damn it and all this sort of shit. But but the second it came to a semi-sexualized word, he he just totally became a four-year-old. Butts. Kick their butts. Like that guy, that guy definitely had major issues. Yeah. Gosh. Be so fascinating. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. It's just because it'd be fascinating to just write or do a research project of like, Coaches through a developmental psychology lens, like look at the wow. stages of human development and Ooh. see where like most of them got stuck. Yeah, because if they learn to cope with the things of life in their, you know, on their football team at age 16, yeah. like maybe they never, maybe they never grew out of it for one reason or another. Like that was the defense mm -hmm. mechanism. It's like, oh, I can always right. go back to what I did when I was 16 and we lost the big game or you know, we'd go in, the, go in the locker room and punch the locker, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's this concept in psychology and spirituality called intergenerational trauma mm. and or, or transgenerational trauma. This okay. idea that like traumatic patterns that people experience that they're not even really aware of, they just kind of implicitly pass down to their kids or their students oh. or whatever, just like yeah. as teachings of a way of being. And I, yeah, it seems like that's so implicit in this like sports mentality. Like these people learned this way of being in their sports and they 
just keep creating that in like new wow. generations and it just keeps going until people break the cycle. That's a, yeah. I I've heard about that before too. And like a, a friend of mine, he, he was doing some work with communities that have been, um, just sort of just faced a lot of issues and just a number of social, you know, political, economic, um, personal, you know, whatever, just a whole bunch. And, um, he, he, I think he mentioned something like the rule of thumb is it takes three generations to get over like a major trauma or something like that. Like that's how, mm. like it'll go down for, you know, two or three generations or whatever. And I mean, that totally makes sense. Right. Cause like, even if, isn't it the case that like, even if something's unhealthy, like if it's what we're used to, we, we, we would, we gravitate for that. Even if like in a, in a very conscious way, we're like, wait, I know this is not good or not healthy, but it's like, but I'm so used to it. That's my safety totally. net. Yeah, Even if it means uh-huh. that I punch holes in walls and like, <laughs> yeah. you know, do stuff that's just not good. Yeah. And it like ties back to what you were saying at the beginning of this, that we need to like educate people on how to like have an emotional experience. Yes. Yeah. Like they don't know any other way of being. It's like the only thing that they're exposed to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm convinced that like these, these passing down of like patterns of emotional, uh, uh, lack of emotional awareness and inability to have emotional, mm-hmm. an emotional range is the, is at the root of a lot of social problems. Yeah. And just For personal sure. problems across the society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. you like, you know, maybe like people in like our, our grandparents age or so remember like they were called like you know, sort of the post-World War II adults at the time, or even the people who like fought in World War II, you know, they're like called like the greatest generation or something like that. And I was talking to my mom about that and she was like, all those dads were really angry. <laughs> <laughs> so like these, like, Oh, this like, Oh, this generation we think of that, like, you know, was like they were like the adults in like the late 40s and 50s mm-hmm. you know kind of like the don draper era you know like mm-hmm. she's like yeah they were all like you'd go to a friend's house and you'd feel like a pit in your stomach and it's like you know it's just like you know it's it's funny because i was reading this book that i think you'd enjoy it's been a long time since i've read any of it but it's called iron john have you ever yeah, heard you, of it you've mentioned that before i've heard of and a couple other people have mentioned it i've heard yeah. it's really good yeah it's really good it's um you know, he, uh, I believe as a psychologist, he wrote it maybe in the nineties or something. And he, it's, it's largely about male psychology and he uses the, um, a fairy tale called iron John to sort of Mm. frame male psychology. And it's kind of a classic, like German fairy tale. I think of like a, a guy who has to like go into the wilderness and sort of like reconcile his, his social and wild side, his Paxton, basically. (laughs) Yes. He has to go into the twister to become a fully synchronized human or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's like the, the ultimate boon in (laughs) Joseph Campbell language. Exactly. Um, but so this guy, he talked about how like the idea of like what it means to be like a, the ideal male in American society just shifts like a pendulum all the time. And he's like, you know, imagine the stiff upper lip, like father of the nineties or no, not, not 90, sorry. The, like the fifties, you know, suit and tie, come home, dinner's ready, drinks ready. I'm angry at my children. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Check those three off the list, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But then it sort of swung sort of like into like the later 60s and 70s into like more of sort of the 
the turbulence of the of that generation worked its mm-hmm. way into like the adult male and it's like men in like the 70s especially like mid late 70s became very like feel oriented mm-hmm. um and then in the 80s it swung the other way with sort of this like uh you know st- strict capitalistic kind of like you know pull yourself up kind of thing and then you know 90s and he just like it's it's mm-hmm. a very like it's a hard thing to navigate when when every few years there's like you know, not to say that there should be like, this is the ideal male, but like, it's weird when the, when the society is saying like, be this way, then be this way. And it, mm-hmm. and, you know, instead of like trying to form like a repertoire of like healthy emotions, it's like, these are the ones no matter what, or these. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's hard to like even conceive of like progress in that yeah. sense. It's just a pendulum seems like an apt metaphor, especially with where we're at now like it's you know had this sense we were making all this like social progress Uh for eight years or whatever and then it was like the election of of trump just like very clearly is like this persona of that particular kind of dude like the emotionally repressed stiff-lipped like (laughs) militant angry scary dad guy (laughs) <laughs> and wow. like yeah. everyone who resonates with that is just like emerged to the forefront. It's like mm-hmm. holy shit! Like <laughs> we have not made progress. Like that yeah. got repressed for all this time. Now that's emerging. It's just like yeah, man. I feel like we're in a weird era where there is there's a lot of repression and a lot of a lot of a lot of shadows emerging to the forefront and a lot of repression. It's like hmm. and people are hmm. either participating in one or the other. And I'm I, I don't like. I don't really have anything to back that up. I feel like it's just something. An intuition. An instinct. Y- an in- yeah, an instinct of some kind. But mm-hmm. Paxton would approve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like we got sucked into the last whirlwind of that and like yeah. just rode it all the way. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like, I don't think I'd th- I hadn't thought any of those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that's the best part about this podcast and things yeah. happen that were not planned. Exactly. The plans never works. It's just nope. like, it's not part of the unpredictable twister. Seriously. I like, you know, like 10 seconds ago when we were just like silent, that's kind of what that scene felt like when the tornado left. And it was just like, ah, yeah, it's gone. Where'd yeah. it go? Yeah. Made it through that one. Yeah. Now we learned more about the innards of that twister. Yeah. Thank you, Pepsi. <laughs> Pepsi. <laughs> your little oh, like man. firework helicopters. Nineties <laughs> corporate sponsors. I know. Yeah. These movies really do make you miss what really feels like a way simpler time. <laughs> like, You're right. These movies are so fucking simple. God, they're so simple. That's what Roger Ebert, he referred to this movie. He he gave it two and a half stars and he and I totally agree with this. He referred to it as skillful because this movie is like skillful. Like it, it doesn't linger too long in one part of the story. It moves along. It's mm-hmm. like boom, boom, boom. Like right. It it, it really is beats. like hits the beats. It's so well paced. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, but don't. He's like, if you're looking for something deeper than that, he said, move on or something like mm-hmm. that. He said, move along. I feel like he. I feel like he said. I feel like he made a pun. Actually, do you mind if I just look this up real quick? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, there wasn't there's not actually it's not i don't know why i thought he put a pun in there he just said um you want loud dumb skillful escapist entertainment 
Twister works. You want to think? Think twice about seeing it. <laughs> Is that the last line of the review? I oh, I don't know. I just caught that off Wikipedia. Okay, <laughs> it sounds like it, it sounds like it could be. Yeah, yeah, or the or the first. Right. Yeah. He would, yeah. Oh, he would have some good sign-offs sometimes. Clever he would. last lines. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Oh, I feel wow. like my brain's exploded. Yeah, me too. You got caught up in the suck zone. Yeah, I definitely entered the suck zone. Or the, the Zuck zone. Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> That's where it all began. Yeah, it did. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for entering this twister with us, listener. Mm-hmm. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. And I hope that you uh, allow your emotions to enter the twister rather than trying to contain the twister. Otherwise, you're just going to get sucked away like Helen Hunt's dad. Exactly. (laughs) Traumatize people. (laughs) That's such a great lesson. Life lesson. (laughs) Alrighty, listeners. See ya. See ya.